Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first Hall of Fame podcast of 2016 for the 2017 Hall of Fame. I'm joined by Grand Prix editor Mark Hughes on my left and Karen Chantock. A very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much. Now, I'd, I mentioned the Hall of Fame. Um, we've got lots of modern Formula One to discuss. We've got loads of readers' questions. Um, but just to explain briefly what we're going to be doing later, um, we need to pick a new shortlist for everyone to vote on. And uh, this year, quite rightly, Sid Watkins won everyone's votes in the F1 category. And we need to come up with a new list of 12 people um, for the public to vote on. We have some really confusing rules, um, and uh, that's why we've had to actually write names on the board, like a um, school classroom. Um, so we'll come to that in a bit, and we have uh, Jack Phillips here to help us um, with the board. Um, it is quite confusing. We are confused about it. So hopefully we emerge in an hour's time with a really exciting list of people to vote on. Um, for now, though, let's talk modern Formula One. Uh, Mark, I'm going to come straight to you with all the current news uh, Formula One's been sold, it hasn't been sold, what, what, what's going on? Uh, it's in the process of being sold, I believe, yeah, everything uh, is everything's pointing to that. Um, so uh, it's going to be in two tranches, uh, the first one will be next week and we're expecting it to be completed by the end of the year, so Liberty Media essentially taking over as the majority shareholder. So they're buying CVC's share? Essentially, yes. Yeah, and, and Bernie's? There's, there's all sorts of uh, detail and th that's not known yet and what Bernie's role is exact, exactly going to be. Uh, he'll certainly be there in a transitional period, despite what you might have heard elsewhere. I don't think even it, it's even been decided what the long-term uh, position is there. Uh, some people have said it's you know there's a certain amount of uh, elation in the paddock, I guess, because CVC has, has been seen as a um, is a company that's made a lot of money out of Formula One and not necessarily given a lot back. Surely we're just going to be, I mean, um, Liberty Media is buying Formula One for the same reasons as CVC did 10 years ago. I mean, it's, it's a vehicle to make money, isn't it? It's buying it to make money, uh, but hopefully it's going to um, have a different model in that it will be uh, an owner who is going to invest in it and, and take a long-term view of it rather than um, uh, you know, private equity company who doesn't operate in that way. They 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 approach it, approaching it from quite a different direction, and um, hopefully that change will be um, one for the better f uh, in terms of the health of the sport. Okay, Karen, would you, if you had all the money at your disposal, would you, would you have bought Formula One or the, the a share in it? Oh, that's a big question. Really. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I, I could start off with a sort of a massa question. I start with a nice beach house in the in the Caribbean, but um, no, I think you know if if you look at it from a pure financial standpoint, CVC have done exceedingly well out of it. It's been one of the you know really more profitable investments. I think if you look at the last decade, so from their standpoint, you know they're quids in. Um, if you look at it from Liberty standpoint, now. I suppose the study needs to be, has it reached its peak in terms of revenue generation, in terms of valuation, or, you know, is there potential for it to go further on? I think that the key difference between a CVC and someone like Liberty is Liberty are a media group. Um, yes, of course, it's a vehicle to make money and they're, they're in it to make money. But I think I'll be really interested to see what they do with the sport in terms of how they 
you know embrace online and embrace new media um and and also what they do with future you know tv and radio deals and um you know how will they impact um you know the price of tickets for example for for the people in the grandstands will they reduce the rights fees you know there's a there are so many things but i think the possibly the the most important and the, and the biggest issue for formula 1 is how they negotiate the terms with the teams because you have to have the teams to have a sport um and really we all know the there are several contracts coming up um in 2020 mark could probably you know elaborate on how many but i think most of them are 2020 on the apart from rena so uh, you know that that's a key point is how you know you how do you do you get mercedes ferrari red bull with both their teams mclaren honda you know all these people to commit to formula 1 to safeguard the future of the sport and for me that's a a very key point of whoever takes over so on on the current time scale we could see changes um quite big changes as of next year or is that to i mean only in terms of ownership not in terms of the the format of the sport how do you mean no as, as in the, the way the formula 1 media is used in terms of youtube social media because motor gp does a brilliant job yeah. and formula 1 is i mean my humble opinion is not particularly good at it but i don't think it's something that we're going to see overnight um you know again i i believe that this is a process that will take a bit of time um you know keep in mind everything i've just said about liberty as a media group there are existing contracts in in play you know for example channel 4 or sky or rai italia whoever you know they've got x rights to put things online and and you know there are certain clauses within the contract that that restrict other people from doing things on the internet and within certain territories so you know i think there are there are several layers upon layers and contracts upon contracts that mean that we're not going to see changes done you know by singapore <laughs> or 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 even by next season i think you know these things all have to play out over a, a slightly longer period of time contracts everyone's favorite thing um one contract that is coming to an end uh, felipe massa is is stepping down from the sport mark what are your you wrote a lovely piece uh, for the motorsport website on him um he's been a great asset to formula 1 hasn't he and uh, he would have been a very worthy 2008 world champion yeah for me he was the the worthy champion of 2008 um he was denied it um through uh the the Renault team's version of Singapore basically because he was Felipe was walking that race and lost all his points as a result of uh, what happened there um he had a, a, a retirement whilst leading late in the race in Hungary um he made mistakes that year but they the both the title contend contenders did Lewis did too um for me he he was um his was a a more rounded performance over the season and um i think that that will stand you know is is the high point of his career um a lovely guy um came in sort of quite a raw rookie very very spectacular and that sort of now he still even when he became a season pro he's still really interesting to watch cuz like quite ragged with the car and the, the car's always moving about he's always pushing and then sort of coming back um and yeah he's been he's been a great asset to the Williams team since joining them in 2014 he's um 
uh, brought a lot of experience there and was still quick. Um, it's only sort of the last year really that Bottas has consistently got the upper hand over him. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's, it's about the right time for him, I think, to, to step down. Um, but I think, yeah, great career, one again, but proud of. So amazing as, as well to come back from the accident that you had um, in Hungary. Because um, I mean, it, did he come back too soon from that? Because he wasn't this quite the same driver afterwards. I didn't think for a certain period of time. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell. Um, I think any period of time out of the sport and out of the car, you know, you 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 lose that last little bit that you need in in qualifying. Um, you know, I don't think Raikkonen's come back as quick as he was w when he left. You know, and I think um, you know having time away is is difficult. So. I wouldn't, you know, I'm not a, a medical expert to, to decide whether it was based on his injury or just based on, on time away. Um, but I think Mark hit the nail on the head. I think he can be very proud of, of his career. He's done a, an excellent job and been a, you know, a good ambassador for the sport. And uh, another of the elder statesmen who's not retiring, who's on a sabbatical, um, Jensen Button. I, I, is this just a convenient way for McLaren to get two, three into two? It's partly that, but it also works for both sides. It works for all parties. It needs, means that um, McLaren get Jensen's appeal with the sponsors and he, he's able to uh, help along with the development program, the car and the sims and stuff like that. Um, but it keeps Jensen involved and that's what he really wants. And, and Jensen's not ready to retire yet, so this keeps that option alive. The, the team has an option on him as a race driver for 18 and we don't know yet what um, Fernando Alonso is going to do at the end of his contract, the end of 17. Um, so it's not impossible. We might see him racing again for McLaren in, in 18. He'd be 38 by then, so you know maybe not. But who knows? But uh, yeah, it's it, it keeps it keeps Jensen involved, which he is what he wanted, and um, he, he's still a, a major asset commercially for McLaren. He's, it, is him getting in two thousand eighteen race seat really dependent on whether Alonso continues? Because I mean, it's either that or Van Dorm is not up to standard. But I think everyone knows he 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 will be. So. Well, the, the the Formula One market moves very quickly, doesn't it? You know, who knows what's going to happen at the end of seventeen? You know, is Kimi going to be around? Uh, Ferrari going to buy Ricardo out of the contract? What's Verstappen going to do? You know, it's it's so difficult to try and plan that far in advance. I think, I think I, I agree with Mark. It from a commercial standpoint has worked really well for McLaren this arrangement. My understanding is that if they didn't take up their option on on Van Dorn, you know, at this point of time in the last couple of weeks, they may have lost him. And I, if you were McLaren, I don't think you'd want to risk that because I think Van Dorn is something very special. So, um, you know, what happens down the line for Jensen in eighteen is is something we can only look at after seventeen. You know, Fernando might get to the first four flyaways next year and think, you know what. I've had enough, and, and he might go. So you know, it's just Formula One is just a constantly moving target, and you have to watch the market accordingly. I would, I would love to see Alonso at Le Mans in a proper works team. Um, I'd, I think it'd be really exciting. But um, hopefully, he has more years left of him in, in Formula One. Uh, we mentioned him there, um, Max Verstappen. Mark, I, I might be wrong, <laughs> but I remember you writing a piece online a while ago when Max first came in 
saying if he's if he's good enough, he's old enough, and he's definitely good enough. Have you changed opinion at all since Belgian Grand Prix, or no, does the same rules apply? No, not at all. Um, I don't think uh, what we saw at the Belgian Grand Prix was really a, a product of his age. I think uh, it's um, we're seeing similar moves from Michael Schumacher well into his thirties. You know, even second time around, if you think back to that movie put on Barrichello, yeah. Um, so no, I, I think it's um, it, it's coming from a different place. From that, that, that. the uh, concern about his youth was whether he'd be, um, you know, he'd be crashing into into people and misjudging things. That's that was what the perception was that he wasn't experienced enough to race safely. Um, that that he's shown that he's, he's a Grand Prix winner. He's he's one of the top guys out there. Um, it's just a question of now. Uh, how the Formula One community uh, uh, deals with the issue that his uh, interpretation of the regulations has brought up because there isn't a regulation specifically um, prohibiting the way he uh, handled Kimi's um, attack in, in, in Spa. So how that, that he's interpreting it to the letter. and So, so that's why the stewards didn't pick it up then? Because I, there wasn't a rule that written down that he'd actually... Yeah, broken. although um, it's since been... Um, Charlie's pondered that maybe he should have got a black and white warning flag because uh, you could, you could, there is a cover-all rule that you could do that you, you shouldn't endanger the, the life of another driver. Um, Karen, what were your thoughts when you, you watched, that, watched that live? I thought it was on the limit, um, but we've seen worse. Um, and normally, if you see worse, they end up in accidents. So, I, th I think if he'd moved a fraction later, if he moved half a second later, you risked an accident. So, I, th I do think it was very much on the limit. Um, actually, David Coulthard and I watched an onboard of the Schumacher versus Hakkinen incident um, there, 2000, and and actually Michael moved to the right and carried on moving right much more than Max did. And in that instance, Mika actually carried on later than Kimi. Kimi backed out of it earlier. So, you know, arguably, as Mark said, we, we have seen worse, and they haven't hit, you know, Mika and Michael. So I, I thought it was on the limit. Um, but, you know, that's that's what he's there to do. You know, he's he, he's there to to stay ahead of the other car and do everything he can within the letter of the law and then argue the toss later on, as long as they don't have a massive argument, massive accident. I do think it's down to the stewards to come down very hard on that, though, um, because it shouldn't be a matter of varying interpretations of etiquette. I think if you make a really strong ruling on it when you have the chance to, like they did at Spa, then it takes the, the it takes the, uh, any ambiguity out of the question in, in the heat of the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the fact that he hasn't been brought up in front of the stewards or anything means that it, it's not an invitation to do the same again but it's not it's, it's not a great example it's to younger drivers it's still not being resolved yeah i mean there's two there, there are too many gray areas when it comes to driving etiquette and driving standards um and it's now if you look at it uh you know the stewards have set various precedents along the way i mean the the classic being the four wheels over the white line track limits thing you know having different rules at different corners it's just massively complicated things. Um, things like, you know, Fernando's 
release from the pit box in in Spa. Was it or was it not an unsafe release? You know, again, th- there's so many things which are they've opened up grey areas. Um, on the flip side, I do sympathise. I had a long conversation with Tom Christensen at Monza, who was the driver steward there, and I do sympathise because every incident that they need to look at is different. The circumstances are different. The speeds are different. The circuit is different. So you you do have to take it case by case. And unless you have the same three stewards going to every race, you're never going to get the consistency. You know, if if three of us went to three, you know, look, looked at an incident with in three different rooms, we'd all have a different opinion on it. So the, the system, in a way, is flawed because, you know, it's a subjective matter you're asking to judge and you're asking different people to judge it every time. Um, it's a solution to hi- to hire the pay professionally hire three or four stewards as full-time permanent people and that is their only job perhaps but at the moment you know these are volunteers technically who are coming to do the races well, it's it's the same in lots of sports though you know how many times have you watched a football match or a rugby match and you know been shouting at the tv because of a decision the referees made yeah, so i guess it's a, a part of sport it's not it's no but it's evolving that, is isn't it? it it's evolving you look at you know in cricket you've got hawkeye in in tennis now they use the technology don't they where they, they have x number of appeals per set and all that stuff so you know i think that every other sport is is evolving and, and so so is formula one but i think the complexities of formula one far outweigh any other sport and and therefore it you know the the way decision making happens and the rule making happens has to evolve at a faster rate. Now, we've got lots of readers' questions here, so t- I'm going to dive into them. They, they jump around quite a lot, um, as is their nature. Um, but there's a nice one here from Jamie Smith, uh, especially in light of your, your new role at Williams. Um, of all the historic cars you've driven, which one has made you wish you had actually driven it in period? Um, the FW14B from 1992, the Mansell car. Um, you know, the, that whole active suspension program I would have loved to be involved with it. Uh, I just read the the you know there's a m- the car manual has come out for it, and I just yeah I've, I've got it on the shelf at home. Yeah, I've just uh, <laughs> I've just I just read it, and then I had a a chance to chat to Paddy Lowe about it, and the poor chap ran away from me in the airport lounge. I think at the end, <laughs> um, but I just think that's a fascinating program. I, I, mean, I think the the 15C is my sort of favorite of the Williams cars. Um, but uh, yeah, the 14B. But uh, I, I haven't yet driven the Mansell 87 car, and I think that'll be pretty special, the Honda Turbo as well. Uh, there's actually another one from Jamie here uh, about how a Formula E car compares with conventional race cars uh, with regard to feedback and feel. Does it, does it feel the same once you're strapped in and pushing the boundaries, or is it, is it a completely different experience? Um, in some sense, it's the same, because you've got two pedals a steering wheel and four wheels um so you know you have to you drive it like a normal car um in another sense it's completely different because the the torque delivery is obviously instant you know the you have to use the electronics to manage the torque delivery rather than than really your right foot because it's you know it's a switch it's binary in some ways um the the lack of sound is weird you know your first three or four laps uh, i remember we were at donnington i came out the pit lane and went down the crane of curves and all you could hear was this, whoosh, whoosh, you know, the the wind noise, and that was just weird. Uh, and it was a wet day, I remember. Um, and all of a sudden, actually, as a driver, you've lost one of your senses. You know, you forget how much you rely on sound 
to, for example, when the back of the car starts to step out of line, you forget how much you rely on the sound to, to modulate the throttle and control the oversteer. And all of a sudden, that, that's gone away. So you soon get used to it, and you rely on you know, your sight and your, your bum to feel which way the car is sliding. But um, yeah, it, it is a bit tricky. Uh, the trickiest part I found was the way the energy recovery system works. You know, unlike in, in modern sports cars or Formula One, you know, it's not, they don't have brake-by-wire systems. The, the electronics aren't as sophisticated. So you know, you've got this manual wind-up brake balance adjuster like you would in a Formula Ford, but you sometimes have to alter the brake balance up to 8 10%, depending on the amount of recovery. So it's a very complicated um, car to drive. Probably, you know, it's not very quick, obviously, especially in, in race mode. But in terms of complication to drive, it's probably the, the trickiest car I've ever driven. Blimey. Um, there's, there's one here from um, at Bring Out the Sun. Um, there we go. Uh, it's, um, it's been a pretty good summer. It has, yeah. Um, bring out the sun. The sun is out. Uh, it's, uh, th I'll point this at you, Mark. Um, it is a question that, that could have an hour-long answer or more, but I could just sort of condense it down a little bit. Um, I think Sir Sterling Moss is the best of them all. Don't you agree? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't disagree, but that's not the same as agreeing, is it? <laughs> it's totally subjective. He's one of the all-time greats. Okay. <laughs> Karen, I'll throw that over to you because I, th I think that it was it was aimed at both of you. Sterling Moss, the, the greatest of all time. I mean, the, the easiest question I've just, ever asked. It's so impossible <laughs> to compare, you know, unless you got them all in the same day, on the same in the same car, on the same tires, the same fuel. You, you just, you know, I, I I hate answering questions like that because I think <laughs> it's it's so subjective. Um, yeah, every person has a different opinion. Okay, so you don't disagree. No, of course not. But <laughs> okay. you know, is you can make a case for anybody, couldn't you? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Well, for mo for most <laughs> yeah. people in so your hall of fame, I would love to hear you make a case for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could say that from the period of Fanjo's retirement until Moss's own retirement through injury, he probably had a bigger margin of advantage over the whoever was the next best than anyone subsequently or before. Um, to bring out the sun. I hope that's that's answered your questions. Um, the, there's one here, where was it? Yes. Uh, it's something uh, that came in via Twitter. Um, Mark, I'll, I'll come to you first. Do you think the pecking order is going to be changed drastically next year when the new regs come in? With the wider tyres, uh, more downforce? Yeah. I think one thing will definitely do, uh, well, two things. Um, one, not, not one good, one not so good. Uh, the not so good is that we'll spread uh, the gap between the front and the back of the field. I think you'll see it an initially bigger spread. Um, but in terms of uh, will it mix it up at the front, I think there are grounds um, to hope so. Yeah. Um, you're starting with a clean sheet. Uh, you're not doing little iterative developments on something that's already the best and trying to keep it the best. Um, I would hope uh, both Red Bull and um, McLaren, I'm expecting a big uh, jump from McLaren, um, from the Honda. Uh, Ferrari not so sure about because they're in a bit of disarray, but yeah, I would hope that m the 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 Merck are going to get a bit of a tougher time than they've had for the last three years. I certainly hope so. Um, I'll, I'll just do a few more of these, and then we'll then we'll move on to um, the the murky waters of our Hall of Fame rules and regulations. Uh, it's uh, Karen, one for you here um, from Kevin Joyce. What, in your opinion, did Caterham Team Lotus 
failed to do in order to stay on the grid. Um, he says, for example, John Booth, Graham Lydon were the core of Manor and Marussia, and uh, they were there through the toughest of times and were helped by the likes of Ferrari. Could Caterham and Lotus um, have, have done more to, to stay? The whole team was a, was a really odd setup. Um, you know, uh, looking back in hindsight and speaking to, you know, they had a lot of good people, but also had a lot of not so good people who um, were earning a lot of money, uh, you know. And I, I think in many ways what happened was it became quite political. You know, it had all the politics of a big team without actually being a big team. And, uh, you know, it, it was a, it, it started to get messy and, and really people started pulling in different directions with, particularly with the aero and development. Um, and, and, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't run as efficiently as, you know, as the lean mean back of the grid team need, needed to be. Um, you know, they, there were a lot of things that, you know, when, when you're a startup team, the people joining you need to sort of recognize that you're a, you're a startup team. And in many instances, they were, because they, for whatever reason, decided to base themselves out in Norfolk, um, you know, and they had to spend a lot of money getting, first of all, Hingham up and running. Then they spent a lot of money moving to Leafield. Um, first, you know, they spent... Uh, I mean, I, I I was good friends with Tony, and you know, yes, we had a bit of a fallout in 2011 about the Indian GP, but uh, you know, we we sorted things out, and and since then we, you know, I get on with him well. But um, you know, it, I remember him telling me they paid a a lot of people across the board, almost compensation sort of figure, uh, a higher salary to leave the teams in, in Motorsport Valley, whether it was Williams or Force India or Enstone or um, Mercedes, whatever, you know, people from that part of the country, you know, they had to pay them five, eight, ten thousand pounds more to move to Norfolk. And then they all had to, then they had to pay a relocation fee to move them all back to, <laughs> to Leafield again, you know, and uh, that's what I was saying. There were, that was just one example of, of in many, I think there were a lot of instances where the, the it wasn't quite managed in the way that it should have done as a as a lean, efficient race team at the back of the grid. Is, that, is it a very hard team when it's like that to go in and drive for them, or can you actually shut all that out and get on with the job at hand, or have you always got this kind of all the politics and the rubbish, I guess, in the, uh, the back in, of your mind? In hindsight, um, you know, it it wasn't it didn't work out for me, uh, and I think in one of the reasons was there were certain key people, without naming names, certain key people in the management structure who just didn't want me to be there. Uh, and they've made life quite difficult, um, you know, it, from, from day one, it was very much, you know, he's just here to drive a bit on the Fridays, you know, I, I, had, I had a contract to do a certain number of races that wasn't fulfilled and, uh, you know, all of that became messy towards the end. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't a pleasant atmosphere for me personally. It, you know, the, the engineers were great. The action, you know, Jody Eggington is now Toroso. Um, you know, who was sort of chief engineer at the time, he was always really supportive and Tim Wright now works with Sergio Perez. You know, there were a lot of, as I say, good people who've gone on to work with, with other good people. Um, you know, Graham Watson is a team manager that at, has now gone to Toro Rosso and, you know, these were all really good supportive people, but there were a lot of others who were, let's shall we say, not as pleasant to deal with. <laughs> 
Um, right, another t another question um, from uh, this is from Jamie Smith again. Actually, it's just a bit further down. Um, I know Karen has a great knowledge of, knowledge of our sports history, and was wondering if he had any thoughts on Francois Severt at all. I'm a big fan of his, although I'm not sure why he died the year before I was born. Um, and then a, t a follow up to that: Does Karen have any motorsport heroes? Um, I mean, obviously Sever was the next man coming. Um, you know, and I think Jackie had really put his arm around him and groomed him in a way that I can't think of any other driver team drivers who have done that. You know, you could argue Schumacher helped Massa out a little bit in the early days, but I don't think there was ever a driver of Jackie's stature or you know, suc or, or as successful as him who actually thought you are my protege and I am going to hold your hand and teach you everything I know because I'm going to retire and you will you will be my legacy. Um, obviously, it was very quick. Jackie recognized that. A real shame that he didn't get to fulfill that potential. Um, as far as my heroes, uh, I, I, I always grew up as a Prost fan and uh, you know I always thought our sport is unique. We've got a, a position where as drivers you rely on technology for the ultimate result. You don't have that in tennis, you know, Federer's and Nadal's rackets are pretty much the same. You don't have it in cricket, you don't have it in football, you know, it's a unique sport. And I thought Pross approach where, you know, he went about trying to get the car to do the work for him and have this minimalist approach in his driving style, putting as little energy as possible into the car. I thought it was just a and still quick, you know, still incredibly quick. Um, I, I was a big fan of that. But I think people like Mario, and, you know, Mario Andretti is another one of my big heroes because I think the the ability to get into anything and win, you know, I you know whether it was IndyCar, NASCAR, midgets, Formula One, of course, and all sorts. Um, big, big Mario fan. And he's, he's still going driving the two-seater, uh, indeed, now. It's what, whatever age he is. And still flat out. I mean, uh, Dario <laughs> Franchito is telling me, you just can't slow him down. He says, you just get in, and he's just flat out. He's <laughs> a bit of a liability soon. <laughs> um, Mark, what's your thoughts on Sever? He was, he was the up-and-coming man, as, as Karen said. Yeah, I mean, he, he came in very inexperienced, actually, in 1970. He wasn't probably really ready. It's just it was a short-notice thing because uh, Servo Gavin had got an eye injury and just retired because he couldn't drive quickly anymore. Um, and Severed engaged Stewart in a Formula 2 uh, dice earlier in the season. And he looked good. He looked like, you know, he was definitely one of the the, the, the most promising of, the, of, of that generation. But he, he was very, very light on experience. Um, but there was no great pressure put up on him, and he he said at the time that you know Ken Tyrrell was great. He said we we don't expect you to be quick, just just get the hang of it. And he wasn't particularly quick at first, but he he, he developed um, when his first Grand Prix in '71. But even after that, his '72 season is a long way off, Stuart. Um, and it was only in '73 that it all started to properly come together. Um, but the, the margin he was off, Jackie, initially, you would be, you, you wouldn't keep the drive now. You would be sacked before the say, season. What, what a change that there's been. You know, if, yeah. if you're not, imagine a team owner, imagine, um, you know, Christian Horner or Helmut Marko coming into a Red Bull Junior and saying, well, you don't, you don't, don't need to be quick. Just, just don't crash <laughs> the thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, you know, Kvyat lost the Red Bull drive because he was about a quarter of a second off Ricciardo on average. Um, you, you, 
Francois' first season against Jackie, you're not comparing like with like Jackie had the better engines and everything like that, but it's probably about ten times that. Yeah, it's a different world, isn't it? Mm. Um, right, for a final question. Um, again, another big, uh, big question that we could probably talk about for um, days rather than uh, sort of a few minutes. Um, this is from Luke uh, Gilfoyle. I think I've pronounced that right. Um, hi, Karen. A massive fan of yours. Um, I just want to know your thoughts on how uh, that's Luke speaking. Um, by the way, but I'm a big fan as well. Um, I just want to know what your thoughts are on how Formula One should be run as a business, a dictatorship, a committee, an entertainment company, and this is all in light of obviously Bernie um, selling shares and, and everything going on there. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's probably not the popular opinion, but I believe sport should be run by a dictatorship, provided it's the right dictator, and, and that's a big, so big, a big that's a big caveat. Um, you know, because I think. Sport, especially something like motorsport or Formula One in particular, it's very fast evolving. Things change very quickly and things need, you need quick decision making. You know, decisions by commissions and committees and, and boards, you know, they, they'll meet once a month or uh, once every quarter, perhaps once a year. And by that stage, the sport's already changed, you know, and I think it's very important for for the sport, any sport, to have certain key people in, at the top um, with a good advisory board around him, perhaps, you know. So if you had an advisory board made up of Ross Braun, Rory Byrne, um, someone from, from the engine side, you know, someone from, from tires, you know, you had peop five, four or five key technical advisors, then you had your key commercial advisors, um, when I say commercial, I'm talking, com you know, from sponsorship as well as activation in terms of media and, s and television things. So you have two elements, sporting and commercial. And you have, say, 10 people as an advisory board, but they all f advise this one key dictator for, for y using, you know, um, the word from the question. Uh, but let's call it a boss. And I think that's... More politically that, correct. Yeah, it's more politically correct. Um, I think that's that's probably a key way to to run a sport. Is it, Mark, would you agree? I mean, I th I think what infuriates me about Formula One at the moment is someone comes up with a good idea or even a bad idea, and nothing can be decided on it. Well, the strategy group has done nothing, has it? Well, it's it's just tied in knots. It's it's in handcuffs, effectively. Uh, it's ineffective. It's um, yeah. I agree essentially with what Corinne was saying. Um, I think you do need a strong man at the head of it. And and also uh, someone with a full appreciation of all the all the facets, but being advised by key people. So, you know, marketing, uh, sporting, uh, technical, um, but with an agreed vision of where where it's trying to get to. Where both uh, what you want that's what you want the sport to be and what you don't want it to be, and also within that, uh, how you can make a good. Um, business out of it, but without subverting the sport um, just to serve the needs of the business. Uh, no easy task. No. no. Um, just before we go on to this, how's all the Channel 4 work going? Because um, you're, you're extremely busy. As I, I, there isn't a race that goes by when you're not um, giving lots of insight and uh, useful, yeah. useful tips. Uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, you know, I didn't quite understand what it, what it took when I signed up for all 21 races at the start of the year. I have to say, it's uh, 
you know, kudos to Mark and all these guys for doing it year after year. It's, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's completely different. when you, you know, when you're driving, there's a real intensity to it. And, you know, the, the motivation, you don't even think about the travel. You don't even think about um, the time away from home or all that because the, the motivation for when you're driving is totally different. When you're going there to you know as a as a bro- with a broadcaster or with a magazine um, you know it it's totally different because you actually spend a lot of time hanging around waiting for something to happen and waiting for somebody to tell you something so there's a lot more hanging around um you know and i think that that took a little bit of getting used to you know obviously i've you know channel 4 is the fifth different formula 1 broadcaster i've worked with um so i've you know i've, I've been around a little bit with with various channels um but it is is very different but it's a great team of people you know it's great to have mark weber and, and dc obviously um they're not shy of opinions uh, and that's not been getting started on what eddie has to say when he rocks up so um you know it, it is good and and so far channel 4 has been very happy with you know viewership in the uk has been good i think sky do a fantastic job but they're chasing a different od- audience you know they they have to create content to fill a whole channel and they're chasing a very specialist audience and i've i've worked with them in the past they've they do an amazing job um channel 4 are chasing a different audience altogether and um so i think it, it's two separate ways of going about things and two separate shows that you need to make and so far the feedback has been very good excellent right the hall of fame um it, i will try and explain the rules um but please shout if if they aren't clear which they probably won't be so uh, this list here starting with watkins down to andretti and then finishing at schumacher these are the formula one characters let's say who are already in the hall of fame so they're already in and they can be forgotten about as it, as it were just for now um lo- this year sorry sid watkins was voted in by the public uh with thousands and thousands of votes uh, quite rightly um so he is in the hall of fame as of um early this year so next year um we have this list here which was the short list that we gave out for the public to vote on uh last year um what i'm proposing um, is that Cosworth, um, Duckworth and Costin, um, Gilles Villeneuve and Nigel Mansell, they finished quite close to Sid Watkins on the number of votes. So I think they should go back into the pot for this year. Is it still with me for now? Yeah, and, and I agree as well. Yeah. Okay. Yep. This then is the list who got uh, fewer votes. So what I'm proposing is that we try and change those names so the public have a fresh set to vote on. If, however, so we're looking for an extra nine names, some of which might be from there and some of which aren't on the board. Ex- exactly. So, for example, if you are 100% certain that Alberto Ascari completely belongs in the Hall of Fame, as he, he might well do, then please say and, and state an argument. Um, and Jack, uh, our very able, useful assistant, will write down new suggestions here so that we don't end up with 15 names like we did last year rather than 12. Does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah, far. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> the the good good thing about these rules um is that they aren't really set in stone because we've um sort of made them up as as we go along. Um however, we have got a note here from Simon, our features editor, um which I I will read out so you're going to have to bear with me for a bit. Um because he's written he's he's written quite a lot. Um he's he's currently sitting Of course he has. W- waiting for 
a gas engineer, so he's obviously got a bit of time on his hands. Are you going to uh, read it in Simon's voice? Uh, I, I, I'll tell you what, I'll go, and then start reading, because he does that every, every podcast. Um, good afternoon, gents. I'm sorry I can't join you today, but I'm at home writing about Alton Park, Prescott, and Thruxton, obviously, while waiting for an engineer to sort our antiquated central heating system. I know many worthy names have yet to be admitted to the Motorsport Hall of Fame, but in Formula One terms, I believe two in particular are most conspicuously absent. In no particular order, they are Gilles Villeneuve and Nigel Mansell. I'm f familiar with the age-old arguments about Villeneuve being a primate in a crash helmet, but the facts simply don't back this up. I'm not sure any other driver, with the possible exception of Tatsuya Nuvolari, has ever encapsulated the essence of racing as fully as Villeneuve. He was hard in combat, yes, but also scrupulously fair. I accept that he had a few accidents, but not many were his fault beyond the summer of 78, his first full season, his first full F1 season, after a fledgling career away from Europe's cut and thrust. For most of his F1 career, he was saddled with ordinary cars, the exceptions being 79, when he adhered to team orders as Jody Schechter took the title in the 312 T4, and at 82, when he died, before he'd had a chance to make the most of the 126 C2. There is more than enough evidence to underline that Villeneuve was a dr driver of great feel and touch, as well as raw speed. How the hell did he stick a Ferrari 126CK on the front row at Monaco in 1981? That was a bit like qualifying a Routemaster bus in the top six. Simon has a lot of time on his hands at the moment. And he was almost 2.5 seconds clear of teammate Peroni, who was, hardly, who was pretty handy. And then there was his habit of, make, of taking tyre compounds more tender than Michelin recommended, yet invariably making them last. A griller? I think not. That he has but six Grand Prix wins to his name, as many as Ralph Schumacher, is perhaps the ultimate proof that statistics alone are a hopelessly inadequate barometer. He should be in the Hall of Fame, period. And the same applies to Nigel Mansell. Nigel might have a, a divisive personality, but that should not be allowed to cloud the facts. He didn't have, to, uh, didn't have to do a great deal of racing on route to the world title in 92, given the superiority of his Williams, but he made impressive use of the material at his disposal. And consider some of the stuff he did when he didn't have an obvious car advantage. Passing Berger around the outside of Perotalda in 1990, winning the 89 Hungarian GP from a midfield start at a circuit where you weren't supposed to be able to overtake, regularly going wheel to wheel with Ayrton Senna and having no apparent fear of potential consequences. Not many did that. In his prime, he was a fine, committed racer. There had been signs of that throughout his junior career, and Colin Chapman clearly saw something in him. I believe he was quite an astute judge. So there we go. Um, any so, he's, so he's agreed with us, basically. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah okay. Yeah, <laughs> right, okay, on to that. Um, th thanks, Simon. Um, I think, obviously, uh, the, uh, funnily enough, I, I know some of the stats behind the scenes, and uh, Duckworth and Coston were the second most popular in public votes. Well, I mean, they're giants, aren't they? They're giants in terms of the engineering behind the sport, and co even if they'd never done anything other than the, the Cosworth DFDV, that would put them in there, because that's... Uh, well, it made Formula One, didn't it? Yeah, really? I mean, totally. it's, it's Absolutely. I mean, it's <laughs> it started the privateer Formula One era in many ways. Yeah, it's you know, it prevented it, it becoming just to preserve the factories, and it, it gave us the you know give it its own lifeblood. Really. What's what's your favourite Mansell memory then? I mean, actually, I think you, it's going back to the eighties. Um, you know, I know he dominated in in ninety ninety two. But to me, in you know eighty six and eighty seven, he was impressive. And I remember watching the re the season review um, earlier this year uh, of both those those seasons. And you know he was actually quite unlucky. He had a lot of races where 
he had non-finishes and, and reliability issues where, you know, arguably he, he should have won the World Championship both those years. And I think, um, but Silverstone 87 has got to be it. Um, I, I was lucky enough to interview um, Mansell the other day and him talking about 87 was, if Silverstone 87 was, was great. Um, sorry, Jack, I t we will give you, so <laughs> we'll give you some names. I think, should we try and throw out some, some new names and also some reasons why you're, why you're putting them forward? Um, and then we can get some new ones on the, on the board and then we can have a look at who we're thinking of dropping and then... So, Mark, you, uh, you first. The obvious uh, missing one from the entire board for me is uh, Ronnie Peterson. Um, you know, he's the... Uh, probably the most spectacular driver um, of his era. Maybe, maybe the most spectacular we've ever seen in terms of just raw car control, but being fast at the same time. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't just drama for the sake of it. Um, yeah, he was, he just lit up the crowd. He was, you know, his, his uh, personality was so different from the, the, the driver as well. Very quiet, self-effacing man. Um, lovely guy by all accounts. Um, I never met him, but uh, know a lot of people who did know him. Um, just yeah, an inspirational character, and I think he should be on there. I would say Nelson Piquet, um, three-time world champion, um, you know, and incredibly intelligent. Was very good at picking his moment when to switch from Brabham to to Williams. Uh, very very quick, um, you know. I think just. Uh, yeah, uh, an obvious inclusion for me. Uh, you know, any triple world champion must have done something right in his career. Um, it's it's odd actually that he's not on this list already. Uh, Mark, can you because you know you were here last year. I mean, I think his name was mentioned, but it didn't. When actually, when you look at the championships, the races he won, he should be a sort of a, a given. Yeah, right? yeah, I mean, it's um, he was the enemy in the time of Manselmania, I suppose. So he's the, he's painted as the bad guy a bit, which but it was a role he liked. He, I think he liked being the, the pantomime villain. Um, very smart driver, um, was very good technically uh, and commercially. You yeah. know, I thought he, you know, he he did his his own deals and he was really smart. At, yeah. You know, he had all his success. Uh, you know, up to really eighty seven won a few races with Benetton later on and then realized, okay, I don't know how many years I've got left. I better start cashing in quite quickly and negotiated some very lucrative deals um, yeah. to make sure he's, you know, set up for life as well. But he, he worked very hard as well. I think he, was it Frank Durney who, who told us that... Um, the active car, he flew back from yeah, Brazil. Yeah, he actually just flew back test. from Brazil yeah. just for a test. I don't know where it was, but it was, some, it was a British, windy, windy right. British circuit somewhere. Um, and uh, you were talking about Manchester, I think he, he couldn't do it and he was stuck in Jersey or something, but then PK flew all the way back from Well, Brazil. that would have been an added bonus for Nelson as well, the fact that he was doing something that, uh, that Nigel wasn't able I to do. I'd never thought of it like that. <laughs> yeah, you, you know the mind of a Formula 1 driver much better, <laughs> much better than me. Um, so, well, before we go on to some more names, are there any on this list, Hawthorne and above, who at the moment we're dropping off the list only for a year, they can come back in 2017 for 2018, but are there any on there that really jump out that you say, hang on a second, yeah. we need to keep them in? Ben Rosemeyer. Um, maybe the fastest driver of all time. Arguably one of the fastest driver of all time. Um, I you said Moss was. <laughs> no, that was the other guy. I just didn't disagree. Um, I, I, I think Fittipaldi should be in there. Um, 
you know, he was a bit of a pathbreaker for Brazilians coming uh, coming over to Europe, and you know, he was really the first. I think you can't underestimate how difficult it is to come halfway around the world from another continent and and make a success of it. And the way he did it at such a young age, um, you know, at a very dangerous time in in motorsport, um, obviously made a very bad decision to go and join his brother's team <laughs> later on. But um, I you think know. it took him eighteen months to get from Formula Ford to his Formula One debut. Exactly, it's incredible. I mean, you know, we're all talking about Max today, yeah. but Fittipaldi was really yeah. the Max Verstappen of that time, and very quickly won his two world championships as well. Yeah. Um, I think I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not sure about this, but I think that the likes of Rosemary, it's harder for people to relate to them nowadays. There's, there's really no footage of them. Mark, I mean, there is actually, there's 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 but YouTube. not in, in terms yeah. of um, someone like Senna or, no, or Prost or um, try and st I don't want you to sell him as such to the audience, but I think try and give us a picture of he was why, what made him so He was just a phenomenal so talent. Fast. He came in, he didn't even race cars before. He came, he'd been racing motorbikes. And he was given a trial because the, uh, the, the bike company that he was racing for was part of the same group of companies that uh, in, under the Audi Union umbrella. And they were at the time running these monstrous V16 mid-engine things, which uh, was totally different driving experience to anything else um, and he came in and was instantly a sensation um, he was leading his second Grand Prix in a misfire meant he didn't win it I think he won his fourth and then he won the European Championship which is equivalent to the World Championship the following year um, he was just just had an astonishing feel for a car and was probably the quickest guy of his of a, an amazingly deep era. I mean, he, he was against uh, Caracciola, Barzi, Novellari, uh, you know, just a fantastic, fantastic depth of talent. And he came in from nowhere and instantly went to the front. And I think that uh, is quite astonishing. I was going to ask, actually, that whether the depth of talent was as good in those days. I mean, there are, as you said, you mentioned a few names there who always spring to mind when you think of talent. But um, would you say the completely different eras, but was the depth of talent as deep then as it is now on the Formula One grid? In uh, the top half of the field, I'd say yes, it, it was. Um, I think it used to fall off more. It's more intense now. It's more intensely packed from front to back, I would say now. And this is even up the top end of a very, very good um, you know, generation. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the the depth that we've got today, because of the number of drivers coming through the Junior Formula, and the Junior Formula racing is actually very competitive now. I think the depth that you've got today is is tremendous. But historically, if you look across the decades, the top half has always been has always been strong. Whether it's a, you know fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, you know, it's it's. The, it's the bottom half that I think has evolved and changed. You know, some decades have been stronger than others. Right, some more names. I'd, I'm going to put one forward. Uh, feel free to shout me down. Uh, Bernie Eccleston, I'm going to say. And I know a lot of people are going to be shouting into uh, in their cars, in their bedrooms. Um, however, that what he did, I'm thinking Bernie post, sorry, pre sort of late 90s. 
um, as, as Damien mentioned in the office. Uh, what he did for Formula One in terms of taking it from a, you know, this kind of rough and ready sport into a global presence into, you know, in front of the world, basically, was, is, is unmatched, I would say. But he, there were a lot of arguments against before, before anyone starts putting letter bombs through my front door. No, um, I think the, the only argument people could have against is the price of the tickets and the grandstands, which, which I agree is, is, is a big argument. But I think to counter that, people at home need to understand that in the last decade, that's been driven by CVC as much as as bernie um you know uh, but i think there's uh, i would agree with bernie because a he's a racer you know he won world championships as a as a team boss um b i think he professionalized the sport and made it as you rightly said into what it is today in in many ways he in the 80s had the vision to do it made a lot of money along the way but Fair play. He he was the only one who put his hand up and said, "You know what? I'll have a go at this." Uh, took his eye off the ball and eventually sold up Brabham because he knew he couldn't devote the time and e- energy required. Um, and yeah, I, I think he absolutely deserves to be in there. I, I can hear people shouting uh, from from behind the microphone. Mark, could you agree with Bernie? Or would, um, I think initially he was a power for the good. Um, in, in how he transformed the sport. Uh, it was it wasn't great when he took over, um, and he also was it's something that he doesn't get very much credit for. Was very much um, behind the improvement in the safety standards. It was him that brought uh, Sid Watkins on board. It was him that gave Sid the power uh, to you know make whatever changes were necessary, and the uh, style of management, the benign dictator uh, ideal that we were talking about before, he 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 fitted that. Um, where I think his uh, influence was uh, less healthy was after he was given the keys to the the sweet shop uh, for the hundred year deal, and in after that is what I was referring to before, where the sport got subverted by the business needs. Um, and that's so I would say check it. Yeah, there's there's two sides. Yeah. I, do, he, I think he, he he's on there with a question mark at the moment. <laughs> um, let's have some more names, um, Karen. I'm going to say Jean Todd. Um, you know, today obviously known as the FI president, but you know, if you you look at the current situation at Ferrari, and Mark touched on it before, you know, it's it's quite complicated and messy the situation they're in today. And I think there is that there is no team that's harder to run than Ferrari historically, if you look at it as a Formula One team. And he went in there in 1993, I think it was, in the summer of 93, having already won world championships and Le Mans with, with Peugeot and, and World Rally and, and, you know, and sports cars. And he got the job done. It took a while, but he created a period of dominance unlike any other we've seen in the sport. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Mark, I think we'd probably need another at least four or five names. Um, so thinking hats on. Is there any that, that spring to mind? There's a, so one of the ones that I thought of was Murray Walker um, for bringing Formula One into. Uh, well, hang on, before you write it up there. Sorry, there is a but. Um, what wall? Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's for bringing Formula One into everyone's sitting rooms, living rooms um, over generations. 
um, and bringing the sport alive and, and making the dullest race sounds actually extremely exciting. Um, however, this year we are going to have a new award called uh, the Motorsport Hall of Fame Trophy which is, is <laughs> oh, it's such a struggle doing the rules and regulations, I've got to explain this now, um, which will be for people who aren't, don't necessarily fit into um, particularly F1 or sports cars or US scene. So the likes of the rally drivers, touring car drivers, perhaps someone like Jonathan Palmer for keeping lots of British circuits alive. So I would say Murray Walker might fall into that, but then again, he was only F1, wasn't he? I mean, I know he loves loves his bikes. Oh, no, he, used to, oh, he, he did, did uh, all sorts. He was touring cars, F3. Yeah, yeah. I've got season review Formula 3s. You know, it's Formula yeah, 1 sure. that made him famous. I, I think he'd be a worthy recipient of that award, yeah. Yeah, the Motorsport Trophy. So leave him out of this for now. Probably, yeah. yeah. We okay. Keep it simple, I, th yeah. I think it'd be unfair yeah. to compare him to the other people yeah, on that to, list. To so. <laughs> well, or, or to the drivers <laughs> or team bosses yeah, yeah, or yeah, other people. Yeah. So okay, right. Um, some more names. From the world of rallying, I'd uh, like to uh, put yeah. forward uh, Henri Tyvenen. What, rallying? Yeah. Well, we, 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 that podcast isn't for another couple of months. Can we not but have a rally driver? Well, we, 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 <laughs> we, <laughs> no. we did some racing. <laughs> we, Come on, Dan. Did you not listen to the rules? Yeah, no, but he did some racing and he's just fantastic. He should be in there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we can't even write him up on the board. <laughs> yeah, no, I knew right. this was going to be a struggle when we started. <laughs> the good news is I think we are on um, course to deliver 12 names rather than... Well, can 15, I, like we did last since year. he's clearly still thinking, um, <laughs> I, I'm going <laughs> to rally drivers. I'm going to throw in another modern one uh, who it's just popped in my head, and we t I talked about it before. It's actually Paddy Lowe because I think he's won world championships yeah, now with yeah. with Williams, with McLaren, and now with Mercedes, and you know actually been very involved at a very senior level uh, in periods of dominance for all three of these teams, and I think. In the same way that you've got Newey up there, um, I, I think Paddy deserves something. Yeah, no, good, good call. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Okay, so um, can we? Yeah, can, why do we? I think Lowe's is, is should be on there. So it's something I didn't actually say in, in all the rules and regulations. Uh, one of which um, is this is this is called the Simon Aaron rule. Um, try not to make anything too left field, um, because last year he came up. He I think five of his suggestions made it into the into the final ones, and they got a, a single-figure vote. Um, you have been warned. Um, there's the last rule is, if someone is, is very current, I know Rossi and Loeb were in this year, um, but the, we're going to try and, if likes of Hamilton, Vettel, they are absolutely worthy of the Hall of Fame, but I don't think their time is now, as it were. How about still a driver on sabbatical? <laughs> okay, I think there is a chink in the, in the armour of the rules there. Are you thinking of Button by any chance? I'm just asking the, yeah, no, the steward I, I, of the meeting. I can't believe I'm the steward. It's the, it's the, you know you were talking about amateur unqualified stewards. Well, here we go. I think Button is valid because he has now stepped down for the time being. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Jensen, in the same way, I put him in a similar category to Damon Hill, uh, an underrated world champion. Um, I think Jensen has... He, he, he hasn't got the last tenth of a second that a, a Lewis may have. Um, and he's actually quite freely and readily admits that. Um, I saw an interview of his with Murray Walker on Saturday that he did, and he was quite open about it, surprisingly so. But he's driven some great races, won a lot of good races. He's a world champion, of course. Um, so I, th I think he's... I'm just going to throw his, hat, his name into the hat yep, and see yeah, where he ends yeah, up. Yeah, okay. 
Uh, any more rally drivers, um, Mark? Or have you got some Formula One <laughs> <laughs> names to put forward? Well, I've put Carlos Sainz now. <laughs> junior, Junior. <laughs> well, uh, should we try and cross some of... I have a question. Did John Barnard ne never come up in discussion? That's a very good that's question. That's actually a very good point. No, that's a good call. Yeah, you should definitely be in there. Well, to make, I make mean, it, he, he the Well, he, he, you know, innovatively came up with the, the idea of a carbon chassis. And I tell you what, having crashed a carbon chassis on more than one occasion, I thank him quite often. You know, the, the, the safety standards of the modern carbon fiber monocoque in a race car are tremendous. Fair play to Ron Dennis for, for allowing him to pursue that. Uh, but, you know, tremendous success in the 80s. Um, and then when on the paddle shift, that was him. Yeah, the yeah that was the next thing, wasn't Ferrari. it? Yeah. Two, yeah. you know, two major advances in Absolutely. Uh, F1 technology, both his. Was he behind the, it was the 89 Ferrari, wasn't it? The paddle yeah. shift car. I mean, yeah. it's still one of the most beautiful Formula One cars. His cars were always very beautiful. Stunning always very cars. elegant, yeah. He should be in just for that, I think, making beautiful Evangos. But he was he was an innovator as well as a designer, yeah. wasn't he? A bit a bit like in the Newey mold or Gordon Murray. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um okay, yeah, I think I think he should get a, a square around him. Um okay. How come Hakkinen was uh was a question mark last year? Yeah, I, no, no, he would say he was um very much in the pot for people to vote on, but he okay. did not get as many votes. As, as the likes of Mansell, Villeneuve and, and Cosworth. Um sorry. I'm a little bit surprised with that. Because, yeah, uh, you know, again, he rocked up at McLaren, our qualified Senna, first time out. And actually, now, when you look back in hindsight, that, that period of Schumacher, Ferrari, you know, um, I know you had, you really had two real rivals. One was Damon, and one was, was Mika. And, you know, Mika's the only one who, towards, you know, that period where Ferrari were getting really strong, I think they on a week-by-week -week basis, they were genuinely worried about him. And I think, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I'm a massive Hakkinen fan. I think he, just for raw speed and being quite, he wasn't political, he wasn't, you know, didn't nope. play the games, just got on, got on with it. I, you know, I've, I still have the season review of the 1990 Formula 3 season. It was him versus Mikasalo. Yeah. And it, it was a fantastic season. It's brilliant racing. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I would say Mika Hakkinen deserves something. Macau that year where his rivalry with Schumacher really started, wasn't it? And then boiled over. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd, I'd, would you disagree with any of that? No, I wouldn't. No. Okay, and well. in fact, when um, I did an interview once with Jock Clear, who was working with Michael second time around, you know, in his Mercedes career, and they'd obviously had many good chats because he used to be the enemy in the other camp. And uh, he was saying that Michael had told him that the reason why he was so all-encompassing in his approach, the way he had to have every box ticked off and had to think so outside the box, was, um, bec as he explained it, he said, I can't drive a racing car as fast as Mika Hakkinen, so I have to beat him in other ways, which was quite a, a revealing thing, that if ev even he thought that. Yeah, that's amazing. I th yeah, for that alone, I think you should have a, a rectangle around him. Okay, so to PK, I think I'd, uh, personally, I'd, I I'm think for PK. Yeah, PK yeah, should I can't absolutely put up be any arguments against yeah. it. Um, any more for above from, from Hawthorne up? Um, so we need three uh, more. Don't well, we? yeah. So we have Yeah, we got three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, yeah, are we, so three are we more. A question mark on Todd, or what are we thinking? Um, what, are, well, what are your views, both of you? Peterson, should we tackle him first? What do we think? 
Well, I, I nominated them, so... You, you yeah, that's a fair point. You also <laughs> nominated Toivonen, though, so... <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't let me have him, so... I'm having the most rally driver-like <laughs> racing driver I could right. think of. Um, Peterson. I mean, I mean uh, Peterson and Rint are both very worthy candidates, I think, to be in the... I mean, uh, you know, I think Peterson, obviously, um, very, very quick, but I think... I think people who go into the Hall of Fame and need need to be a bit different. They need to yeah, be it's, it's characters. Not about, it's, it's not, not, it's not just about stats. You know, it's it's about being... And I think, you know, Peterson showed his loyalty in his year with, with Andretti. You know, played the team player very well. Great character um, in that respect. Um, and He's I think... He's also a bit of a folk hero of the crowds just because uh, exactly. of how dramatic was he say, was. Yeah. yeah, I was about to say, in, in a way that... You know, I would think of someone like Jean Alesi, you know, only won one Grand Prix, God knows how. Uh, but, you know, if you look at his F3000 record and the way he arrived in F1, you'd think that bloke's going to win five world championships. But to me, he, he's somebody as well. And, and Peterson is sort of like that, isn't he? He's, he really had this appeal with the fans um, because of his style, I think. So I, I would say yes to Peterson. Okay. Um, I'm just going to throw another name in the hat. Um, the, the stats... Um, lying sometimes uh, brought it to mind. Chris Amon, what are our thoughts? Because uh, some people say he was <laughs> he wasn't very lucky. He, he wasn't. Uh, no, as, as Mario Andretti said, if if he he was an undertaker, people would stop dying. Um, the uh, it's arguably one of the fastest drivers out there, but just totally, uh, yeah, 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 and but just and spectacular. There's that obviously that photo of him um, on opposite lock. Uh, to Alton Park, which is just no, one of the yeah, greatest. just one of the the great natural talents of all time. Just a, a fabulous driver. Um, made some questionable career choices that really sort of didn't let that translate. But um, when he was in comp probably the most uh, competitive car he had over the season was '68, and he should have won the world championship that year. And it was no fault of his that he didn't. Um, so yeah, yes, I mean yeah. Okay. Very much in our minds at the moment as well. Did he lose the race once because he tried to pull off a tear off and pulled his visor off? Should I read that? Uh, right? Yes. yes. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. who loses the race yeah. because yeah. of that? Yeah. You know, it's just it's so monster. unfortunate and unlucky. Um, yeah. No, I, I would, I would agree. I'm not sure if I'd have him over having rent, um, but I, I'll tell you what. We can make a deal. How about rent and Eamon? And no Todd. And no Todd. So we got to throw one of those three out. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Uh, yeah, yeah. Six. Ten. I th I think is I think uh, what Todd achieved at uh, in sports cars, rallying Ferrari especially, is absolutely amazing. But he was part of a a core team there, Braun. Schumacher. But he pulled them together, didn't he? In, in yeah, ways. and I mean, it's, and it's, then it's hard to argue. <laughs> but um, then also, FIA president has he been a great FIA president? Would you say? Not yet. No, I think I time. I think time will tell. Yeah. You, you can only look back when it's when his term is finished. I think you know when you're in it. There's too many divisive issues going on. I don't think it's fair to judge. I think. But well, I just look at how difficult it is to run Ferrari, or must be to run Formula Ferrari Formula One team. Yeah, I, I agree. Agree. Uh, okay, about, I, I'm going to say yes to Todd. How about we swap Todd and Low? Because Paddy's still very much involved in the sport. He's still very hard for Mercedes. Is still achieving now. So going by that rationale, sorry, the rationale of not including the likes of Hamilton and Vettel, 
should he? I, I, I know <laughs> up here we have quite a few names that are, that are still. I, knew, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think yeah, Newey's retired. It's kind of, it's sort of, as people, I said, people would hope Newey's retired before the 17 aero rules come out, but uh, I don't think so. Thoughts on that, swapping Todd for Lowe? I feel as I'm actually doing some what, kind of I business deal let's here. Le- let's leave Rint out because he didn't, you know, he didn't make it last year. And, um, and try with someone like and, and let's Eamon go. And Todd. I think we should have Todd and Chris Eamon in because I, I, you know, Mark? genuinely, yeah, I'd, I could settle on that. I, I could live with that. Yeah. No, Bernie. No, I th- it's too divisive. I have to say, I d- I d- I'll never hear the end of it. Um, <laughs> so Todd and Eamon, I think. So that does that now make twelve. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. There we go. Is, any, is anyone on that list that jumps out that should be in or shouldn't be in? Only Titan. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, wants to be invited we'll get, back we'll, to the rally. We'll podcast. get you back for the rally podcast. I think. <laughs> I don't know how many rallies he's been to, but <laughs> 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 um, yeah. may, maybe next year for Toivonen in the Formula One category. Karen, anyone before we t- we call an end to this um, to this nightmare of rules and regulations? Anyone that that's missing or anything that jumps out that shouldn't be there? Well, uh, in, in many ways, I think like you had uh, Hill and Hill, and you've got Cosworth. I think you know Frank and Patrick should have gone together. I'd like to see Patrick back um, on another list because. Especially in '86, you know, after Frank's accident, it would have been very easy for the team to fold up and go. And Patrick really steered the ship, and they won the world championship. That um, you know, as, as constructors, and then won won the following year um, in '87 with dominance, really. So, and you were talking earlier on about characters, and he's oh, a yeah. massive character, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, to me, that's that's one that I hope gets that's included again next year. Yeah, absolutely. All, all the names that have been left off can be put back in, in next year. So, um, Jack, thank you so much for all your help on that one. Um, Karen, thank you so much for all the insight on current F1 um, and giving all the answers to the readers' questions. Mark, thank you so much for suggesting Henri Toivonen for the Formula 1 category and for all your insight into the modern world of, of Formula 1. We will see you all in a month or two for the sports car category Hall of Fame podcast. We'll see you all then. Bye-bye.